This is the Baywall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we are introduced to Pilate and watch with the crowd as Jesus does everything except get John the Baptist out of jail. <laughs> sure seems like it. Does just about everything. And we find out that everything's not everything and God's always up to something and not always what we want. Yeah, that's... Uh... Yes, indeed. <laughs> I think uh, I think we should just get into it because we got a lot to talk about in this episode, Marty. Absolutely. Okay, so it's kind of a spooky start to the episode. Uh, it's like everything's kind of green. There's fog on the ground. Everybody's asleep. Then this big, like white and yellow snake appears, approaches Jesus, who is uh, lying. What would you call that? Lying prostrate? Yeah. Yeah. He's at least bent down on the ground. Yeah, definitely kneeling face down. Yeah, absolutely. And then right as the, the snake approaches, Jesus turns around and then like somebody wakes up from a dream. And we don't know who this person is yet. And I don't I don't know if we ever really find out for sure. I assume this is Pilate's wife. I don't think she's ever named or addressed as such directly. I don't know. I thought she was. I thought he calls her. He talks about her being a wife or something like that. The only thing I said is he called her like dear or something like that. Yeah. Definitely who she is. And I think there was a reference or two made, but I I can't remember exactly. Well, anyway, she wakes up uh, and then she finds four men who are apparently zealots being crucified outside. And then... Pilot appears and is the one who ordered the executions. And she's just like, oh, it's so early in the morning. Why are you doing this? And yeah, that's Pilot, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I appreciated meeting, seeing who it was going to be. They referenced him, I think, in the last episode. So you knew he was coming. Obviously, you knew he was coming eventually one way or another. But had a feeling it was going to be that next episode. So it was interesting to see how they... A young pilot, which that could very historically, there could, you know, I don't know my history around pilot and his story and timeline, but I thought he was younger than I expected. And uh, I thought it was an interesting way to weave his bulldog-like personality, yet his political savvy slash concerns. I thought it was interesting. Liked, I liked meeting Pilot in this episode. Well, and as we'll talk about later, not the only character who is younger than uh, some of us expect. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then we just have the credits. So then we see the disciples are sharpening some weapons. Matthew uh, approaches the group and starts asking them about it. And, you know, (laughs) poor Matthew uh, just doesn't quite grasp the, uh, I don't know, in some ways he's like, hey, this this should be pretty simple. Like, why are you doing this? And then in other ways, he doesn't quite understand the risks, maybe. I don't know. Seems like a dual, dual thing going on in Matthew's mind. Uh, but they argue about it. They argue about how to use their weapons, when to use their weapons, even if they should use their weapons, etc. Uh, Nathaniel and little James are concerned about Z. Uh, Nathaniel talks to him at one point and then leaves. And then little James goes over and talks to him and turns around for just a moment. And then he disappears. And uh, and then this is where Simon uh, hears about Zebedee being done with fishing. And he's quite surprised by that. Uh, but lots of... Uh, 
lots of uncertainty and tensions going on in the group right now. Yeah, I this scene, like the weapon part of it, like the angst is certainly there, like felt a little a little dramatic to me. Like I was like, man, could I see the whole Havara? Like I appreciated what they were communicating because the social dynamic of what they're wrestling with and like they, they're just portraying that super well, um, that everybody would be sharpening weapons as a response to I thought there was uh, I, I don't know. However, on another note, I thought some of the best jokes I've heard were in this scene. Um, I love the opening uh, crack at Matthew where it was like, well, you know, James and John healed healed a blind man. They'd be glad to, you know, do <laughs> yeah, that right. a second time for you. I thought that was good. <laughs> I love the little thing about, <laughs> which I took as like half joking, half serious. Peter teaching Matthew how to stab somebody in the eye with a pencil, um, with a pen, with a whatever you want to call that, a stylus. I, I felt like that was totally serious. <laughs> like, hey, we don't expect you to carry out a knife, but you're you're going to have your pen. So you might as well know how to use it. <laughs> that thought it was a great little ditty. So there are, there are some moments in this. Uh, scene that I was just like, oh man, that was well written there. <laughs> uh, so then we're with Gaius arriving uh, to speak with Quintus, who asks about Gaius's brothers. Gaius says he has one younger brother, and Quintus equates Atticus to a meddling little brother, telling on him to Pilate. Uh, they're talking about how they're going to manage all of this stuff. Gaius has apparently failed to manage the crowd with the tents. And Quintus kind of ponders killing Jesus, but then he's like, no, that would just cause too many other problems. Um, and so Quintus ultimately wants guys to get rid of the tents and guys is really struggling to, I mean, he's got a lot going on in his mind. Like he's, he's barely even responding in the scene half the time Yep, and just really struggling to accept what he needs to do here. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you can see that. When he when Quintus first started, I was like, oh, no. When I first watched this episode the first time, I was like, who told on Gaius? And what did they say about because he was talking about the brother tattling and didn't know where it was going to go. And then, it, of course, becomes about Atticus and Quintus and Pilate and all of that. But, yeah, yeah, you could definitely and that will obviously play out for the rest of the episode. But I definitely appreciate I, I, I really, um, really like what they're doing with the Gaius character a lot uh over these seasons so appreciated the the tension in that scene um, absolutely uh next up we have leander who i don't <laughs> think we knew his name before I don't, I don't even really remember seeing him but he is sneaking into the room where andrew and philip and judas are sleeping and uh you know another good moment of humor there uh several several good moments uh, but the people of Decapolis are upset about the preaching that they did. And uh, they, they're they like, well, we were just preaching to the Jews. And he's like, well, the Decapolis is this melting pot. There's all kinds of people there. Other people overheard it. They started making changes. That caused tensions. Like everything's spinning out of control. And they're just like, well, that was just a, that was just a short-term mission. Like we already did our thing. He's like, there's no way that your mission can't be done please come back and fix all of this because everything is insane right now. When they very first went out on the little mission trip, whatever you want to call that, um, I, I have never envisioned them going into the capitalists. I don't believe we're told that they did. Um, I just don't think you have a very strong Jewish presence there. If you do, like in some parts of the capitalists, I would assume like 
like Beit Shan, um, Sithopolis. Like, I would assume that there are places like that where you're going to have some Jews there. They're going to be very Hellenistic Jews. You're not going to have this observant Galilean type um, Jewish presence in the Decapolis in my mind. Um, so I think at one point in there, he talks about how some of the Jews have reacted one way and they've kicked out the Hellenists. And I'm like, well, the Hellenists are the only ones that would have been there. So I, I could definitely be wrong about that. Um, that's just how I've seen history. I'm probably, I always like to over exaggerate my historical, whatever you want to call it. Like it's reality is always far more nuanced and there's, pr- there's probably more of a reality than then I give it credit for, generally speaking, I don't think you had a whole bunch of Jews in the Decapolis. And that was clearly what Jesus did send them to do. Go to the lost sheep, you know, go to, go to Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles. We're not going to the pagans. So um, there's some consistency there. Whether he would have sent people to the Decapolis to do that is an interesting, an interesting take. But yeah, those are the notes I have there in that conversation. I was like, Jews in the Decapolis? Probably. If they, if they were, they would have been Hellenists for sure. So, yeah, Herodians, we might say, and um, Bema parlance, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I do wonder, like, how are they going to portray something like the parable of the lost son? Because sure, a big part of the scandal of that is where he goes. Where he goes, yeah, right. right. And if there's just, you know, a bunch of other Jews there, then it's maybe not as scandalous. But, yep. I mean, I suppose for the people who are living up in the triangle, maybe it would be scandalous, even if there are a bunch of others there. Yeah, and that would th- those social stigmas definitely would have been strong enough that the references we have in history to how they felt about the Decapolis probably were not shared by Judaism as a whole. And you can imagine the Hellenizers probably not seeing it the same way. So, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, next up we have Mary practicing her writing and Tamar enters the room. She comes up with this idea for what to do with the olives. And Mary shares that she thought Tamar was rude to Zebedee. Tamar wants to know what else is bothering Mary because that's clearly not all that there is. And she kind of shares that uh, she resents Tamar in some ways. And it turns out they both think that the other one knows everything and does everything right. Um which is just, I mean, how how human is that? Really, is that's just how we how we get in our own minds and assume that we understand the mind of the other person, and everything is totally backwards. I, I thought there's a, uh, I just I thought the whole scene was really well done. A, it was the resolution I had been waiting for because of this tension between Tamar and Mary, and I was like, come on, give me. Like, we got to resolve this. I'm going to die over here. So this scene finally gave me that. But I I loved how they got there, which was Mary and Tamar both having, um, um, what would I say? Like, they both have their own limited perspectives, and yet they both have something in their perspective that's loaded with insight about the other person about the other person. And when it starts, it's obviously insight that's coming from a critique, like a, a very critical, uh, I don't want to say critical spirit, but a critical eye. And then by the time they're done, that same insight that they had was correct, but they've turned it into a strength. And so, you know, Mary tells Tamar, she's so bold. Um, Tamar tells Mary, she's so like ashamed, like this, Mary calls it humility, and there, and and the humility part would be beautiful. Good. I wouldn't critique that at all. I actually wish at the end of the scene, they actually used the word humility again, because 
um, the humility, I think, is a beautiful part of it. But that humility can so easily be tied to us, for us, all of us, to shame. And and so um, I wrote down some great quotes. Like, I can't imagine doing what you do. And I hear Mary saying to Tamar, like, the way that you do it. Um, right. You just march right in there. You just... Uh, Tamar says, <laughs> Tamar says, I'm sorry. And Mary says, you don't have to apologize. She says, no, I'm not sorry for that. And I was like, Oh, this is going the wrong way. Um, I'm sorry <laughs> for the, the shame, um, and regret that you feel. And yet that there was some insight in there. Like it's said with an edge and a tone, they're like kind of on their way to turning a corner. But, but I also thought like there, yeah, there's actually some insight there. Um, you choose to hold on to it tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. I wrote that down too. Jesus forgave you, but you choose to hold on to it. Yeah. And I thought, you know, this whole scene really depicts a tension that I think all of us have experienced in different ways, whether it's in our churches or, you know, whatever of the tension of being the insider versus the outsider, even an insider that was like a total outsider, like Mary, but now she's become an insider. She's forgiven. She's, you know, whatever. And, but there's often this tension of people that are the religious, like they've, they got saved, they figured out how to live and move and breathe within the religious community. They, they, they've learned some theology and that theology has kind of like, it's grown and morphed in some unhealthy ways, but they have like this pretty structured, pretty, you know, this is, this is the way, like, this is the way. And then, and then you have like outsiders they don't assume all those rules, all those norms. Outsiders have been like on different levels, whether it's literal survival or whether it's like a more metaphorical spiritual survival. But that boldness that an outsider brings in, like uh, somebody who's never grown up in the faith or just freshly got, you know, experienced the salvation of Jesus. And they're, you know, they're, they're just brand new, a, a babe spiritually or like that tension I thought was really well depicted Here's Tamar as an outsider. When you hear her story, she's had to, she, she's literally, it's been about survival. She doesn't have time to be ashamed or, or humble. She's had to be bold in order to survive and get anywhere she's going to get in her life. In the meantime, Mary's experienced salvation. She's, she's, she's processed that. And she's, I just thought that tension represented in these two characters is one that I think we can all resonate with. And I loved how they end up coming together, showing empathy, showing compassion, um, being curious on some level. There's a, there's a level of curiosity. You have to be curious enough to listen to the person curious enough to hear their story. Um, and at the end they end up saying, you know, you, you have both of them end up saying you have something that, that I could use Mary. I, I could use some of your boldness and Tamar saying, I could use some of your, what did she call that? I wanted, I wanted her to say humility, but she said something else. Um, I could use some of your gratitude is what she said. Mm, yeah. And, um, and, and I thought, yeah, that's, a, that's another way to phrase it. But I, I really liked how that scene represents a tension. I think a lot of us are familiar with from one side or the other. We can sit in Mary's shoes, or we can sit in Tamar's shoes and we can understand kind of where they're coming from. Yeah, it's it a great ending to the scene and a great resolution for their uh, struggle. So then we have Atticus uh, riding and he comes to this tent and Pilate is reading a scroll. Pilate comes out uh, and greets him and Pilate is like, I mean, we're, we're just starting to get to know him a little bit. Um, it seems like he's a, kind of impulsive and doesn't really care that much, but then you know, the more he thinks about things, he's like, well, I'm not really sure what I should do about this. 
everything's complicated because uh, he can't he can't be the most like violent person in the region. Uh, but if he's not violent enough, then things get out of control, stuff like that. Um, I don't know. There's there's like a lot going on in this little scene, um, and his his decision seems to be bouncing back and forth. Um, but ultimately I just got the impression that Atticus and pilot are like old friends or something. Yeah. And, and I think there's a couple of references that aid to that, that, that kind of adds to that assumption. It's probably the assumption that they were trying to insinuate, or at least what I took away as well. Um, but I liked how they use the dialogue. I mean, writing dialogue has got to be so hard. Um, I remember reading a book, I think it was by Robert McKee. It was called story. And it was all about how you, um, basically, movies but also you know writing how do you write story and when it comes to cinema how do you make a story and that book one of the things it did for me was it really helped me understand how difficult writing dialogue is it feels like it's going to be easy and he pointed out and i think it's a text used in undergrad or grad school when you're in that line of that training and that that education, but it just really illuminated like writing dialogue is really hard. And I, I thought of this scene. I'm like, they did a lot with the dialogue to kind of educate us as the watcher of the very like historically accurate political dynamic that pilot finds himself in. And again, they created a character differently than I would have. And yet I really have enjoyed how they're bringing that together. And the Atticus pilot conversation, the Atticus character character. I've just been fascinated with the whole time. Like, Uh, like not biblically like not present in the biblical narrative kind of this added character and man has it added to their ability to do certain things throughout throughout the production and i just have really enjoyed it yeah i wonder at what point they realized they needed a character like that to to stand in for all of these things yeah i know yeah at some point yeah and yeah I, i i'm fascinated by just the art behind all of that and what they have to do as as writers because they have a few of those characters there's a few very deliberate created characters and they've done it well where they end up helping you accomplish quite a bit and i've man, it's it's fascinating just as a, a fellow creative i just am fascinated by the art part of that mm-hmm. so we're back with mary and tamar and they have solved the olive problem. And then Zebedee arrives and, and is like, oh, well, I didn't even realize we had that, that problem. And, but they start to get to work and they're talking about how nobody's seen Jesus in quite a while since the healing. And so they want to put the disciples to work. They might as well be doing something. And uh, Zebedee's like, oh, I don't know if I have that kind of authority. And they're like, well, what else are they going to do? Nobody knows where Jesus is. So whatever. Um, and then, uh, at the end of that, we see Mary go to get some money for Zebedee to buy some of the supplies that they need. And she discovers some tassels among Matthew's other things. And I don't think we actually get to see anything else about that until the next episode, but yeah, she, she stumbles onto that, which was pretty interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And I'll have to keep myself from talking at all about it because of what I know about where it's headed. But when I saw this scene, I was like, Oh gosh. Wow. Can't wait to see what they do with that backstory. So, yep. Uh, so then with Atticus again, uh, he's sharing with Pilate about uh, Jesus. And Pilate is, he, he's more or less content with the job that he has. He doesn't really want, he doesn't have like these grander ambitions to like 
go on to become Caesar or whatever. I don't know what somebody would want to do from his position, but he's fine with what he does. And he says, except for Caiaphas, horrible man. And I'm like, wow, what, what kind of a weird relationship does he have with Caiaphas to, to like single him out as this like horrible person to work with? Like, I love my job except for that one guy. And uh, Atticus also had a line in there uh, that I thought was pretty uh, illuminating of the Roman perspective. He says, sometimes peace takes a war. And um, yeah, and then it, Pilate assures Atticus that he will listen to him if Jesus ever becomes not peaceful. Right. Yeah. I, I appreciated the Caiaphas comment a ton because I thought, you know, we've talked at great length about the corruption of this chief priesthood. And I thought, man, even the Romans can see like how corrupt, how, how ick, how ugh, this, this character and this corrupt spiritual leadership is. So I really, when that passing comment was, <laughs> I kind of grinned as I watched that. And I, I, I do wonder, like, what, what did they have in mind? What, uh, I mean, are we going to get to see that at some point? This, I mean, I'm surely we're going to get to see this at some point, an interaction would, between yeah. Pilate and Caiaphas. So I wonder how, how that backstory, whatever, whatever it is that makes Pilate feel that way, if we're going to see any of that as well, or if we're just going to see yeah. what's in the biblical narrative. So we'll find out. Yep. Yep. Uh, then we're with Simon and Eden and they are sharing a meal and Simon is trying to compliment her. They're interrupted, of course, uh, by the sons of thunder making thunderous pounding on <laughs> Simon's door. Yeah. And, uh, so it turns out there's some disciples of John the Baptist in town and they have a message for Jesus. And there, there's one moment in there where John, uh, clearly remembers Joanna's name, yep, which I thought was interesting. Um, but Luke is actually the only one who writes about Joanna. So I don't quite understand why he was so like forceful about how he knows her name. I don't know. And then, so eventually Simon kind of shuts them down um, and comes back and he's like, see, I can, I can say no to work. And by Eden's already disappeared. So, right. Right. So then we kind of cut to the next day and Simon is meeting with them. Uh, he tests them to find out if they really know Andrew and really know John the Baptist. They pass that test. Um, and then we cut over to the tent city and Z is watched slash haunted by other zealots. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> they're definitely, uh, and I don't know if this is like, Z is unfocused. And so like they are watching him, but then they disappear and like Z just doesn't have quite the focus to see that movement of them going away or if there's something else going on there. But ultimately these guys corner him. Um, we also see Gaius patrolling the tents. He's struggling what to do with the situation. He ends up helping some people move their cooking setup. Um, and then we're back to Z and he looks like he begins to pray. He falls down on his knees, um, pulls his hood back, confronts the watchers. And, you know, he's trying to explain himself and they're, they're, they're thinking he's a traitor. And he says, you know, I joined the order to fight for the Messiah's coming and he is here. Um, 
we see Gaius in the background offering to help someone with his tent and the zealots are like, what do you mean he's here? Like the, the kingdom of heaven doesn't, that, that doesn't make any sense. Like how could it be here when Rome is still here? And, um, Z mentions that he's given up the Sika and bet his life uh, on this whole thing after witnessing the healing of his brother. Yeah, yeah, giving up the Sikar, the dagger um, that they're all carrying. And when I saw him, I I didn't know if he was going to be carrying his dagger because of the first part of the episode where he was sharpening one. Um, So I'm like, oh, crap, he's going to have his dagger on him. But he then, you know, he pulls back his cloak at some point and shows he's unarmed, doesn't have it. Um, and rem- and if you remember, he had disappeared at that opening scene. So, like, I don't even didn't know, didn't know where he was at, didn't know what. So, very interesting, and I love how that came back around where he was. You know, he may have been struggling, but he was where he was when that scene happened. I, I like how they're depicting the zealots, um, how they'll be there, and there might be artistically, like you know, messing with Z's mind. But I think there's literal zealots and all those scenes literally there. And, and I like how they depict them as just kind of like a person passes in front and they're just gone. Cause I think zealots were very, very strategic. They were very well-trained. Um, like I, I think they would have had that kind of, um, <laughs> the only expression that comes to my mind right now is ninja esque. Um, they would have definitely had this slip into the shadows uh, disappear at a moment's notice, um, be standing right behind you type of a a, a way about them. And I, I really like how they've mm-hmm. kind of depicted the zealots in these interactions like that. So then we're uh, briefly back with Simon and the, the other guys, and uh, he's kind of unimpressed with their question. He's like, that's all you want to ask him? Um, and they're like, well, yeah, and we want to get a response soon. And so they're all laughing about, you know, we don't know what soon means. And so then it, it cuts and they're they're all outside of a house sleeping. I I kind of got the impression that this is maybe the same day, but I don't know. Um, but they're all sleeping and then some people start running by. It turns out Jesus is back in town. So a crowd is gathered and he's healing some people. Gaius is watching. The zealots are watching. Uh, we see that guy that uh, was in the last episode that you said was named Akiva. Uh, I still don't know that they said his name in this episode again so we're we're going off of the subtitles um, but he's moving around in the background working his way through the crowd and we did find out by the way as we talk about akiva we did we were thinking about some other questions before we started recording today when we just did a quick little search on when akiva was born and this would definitely not be the same akiva that we were talking about like man is it potentially are they trying to potentially portray him as the the Akiva Akiva of Capernaum and and that Akiva wasn't born until um our article was saying about fifty AD. So that'd be obviously far too late. So this would be a another Akiva. Our article. It's just Wikipedia people. I'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah. Thanks for making us sound so scholarly <laughs> there. Um but yes, that's that that's not the same that would not be the same Akiva, which puts my mind at ease because the Akiva of history that most of us think of is very pro Hillel, very Jesus-y. And I was like, man, either this character needs to have a life-changing moment or this is somebody else. So indeed, it was somebody else. We very well may see that life-changing moment. I don't know. Um, 
but yeah, like what I was saying earlier about people being younger than we expect, like if the actual Akiva was born in 50, right? that means when the temple was destroyed and he like ordains all the rabbis, he's only 20 years old, which is like, what in the world? And he was very well known, like he was one of the youngest, he's one of those ancient figures and ancient rabbis that's known for his, um, what do they call it? The, the mark of righteousness, like he was surpassing the rabbinical training, all of those typical markers. He was ahead of the curve. So I didn't realize that age, you know, that age curve either. I I was shocked to contemplate that as well, that he could have been that young. And I'd have to do some more research to see what Jewish tradition um, has and how they, how they piece that together. But very interesting. Yeah. And I just never, I never actually looked into it. I just assumed that he was like this elder figure and, you know, he was the, he was the most senior guy among all the teachers. And so when things start to go down with the temple, then he he's, of course, he's the one who, and maybe it is still like that. Maybe he is so uh, prominent in, in their group that, you know, maybe he is the obvious one just because of whatever he has that, that the rest of the group doesn't. But um, yep. Yeah. Definitely shocking to see that he's only 20 when that happens. Yeah. My goodness. Uh, okay. So back in the scene, Barnaby is watching Jesus heal a boy who is blind. So obviously, you know, he's thinking about Shula in that moment. Um, we see Yusuf and Jairus appear. Uh, Simon comes around the corner, brings John's disciples to Jesus to ask their question. And so <laughs> They're they're a little uncomfortable asking in front of this crowd, and Jesus addresses the crowd, welcomes these guys, points out that John's in prison, and so then they they ask the question, "Are you really the one who is to come, or should we look for someone else?" And um, Jesus is amused by this, and he's like, "Hey, look, even even John the Baptist, who you know said all these nice things about me, he, even even he has questions about what's going on here." Everyone is at this point like not really sure how to respond. We're just going back and forth. Like Akiva's like, what is happening here? The zealots are freaked out. Like everybody's just like on edge trying to figure out how to respond to anything that just, you know, whatever. Uh, but then right as everything's kind of about to explode into chaos, uh, Jairus jumps in and makes his comment like, Hey, there's that law. We can't be in a crowd of, you know, a bunch of people after this time. And, and then Gaius is like, he's right. <laughs> and that, like, what a crazy thing for a Roman to be by himself jumping into this crowd of people who definitely don't like him. There's zealots all over the place. Like, wow. <laughs> I don't know how much they were trying to say with that, but uh bold move on Gaius's part for sure. He does end up drawing his sword on Akiva yeah. <laughs> um, because Akiva tries to like jump in and like say you know whatever he's gonna say and and uh yep Gaius like turns and gives a look to Yusuf and Jairus it's like what are they like it's just all these weird relationships going on obviously Gaius has you know some stuff going on that makes him much more open to relationships with all these people and seeing what Jesus has done all this stuff but like how much does everybody else know that? Like how many people in this crowd are aware of what's going on with Gaius and feel like I, I cannot believe like that. I think that go, goes to show how much the zealots are shocked by what they've just seen, because in any other circumstance, I feel like one of them would just run up and 
shanked him in the neck. Yeah, it's it's definitely possible without and and they did show. I noticed during the scene multiple time Roman soldiers in the background moving about um, mm. for a couple of them on horses. And so, you know, if Gaius wasn't nearly as alone as it appears, and you would imagine they never really are with a tent city, they probably have a ton of patrols. So that would that would have been the one thing that kept the zealots from from moving if there would have been a, a bigger Roman presence. But I did love the diversity in that crowd. I loved the clever how they worked that out with Jairus and then Gaius. And I just thought that that was really good. Um I'm trying to look at my notes here from this scene. John's impatience. I did love how even John, we're all impatient. No, we all have questions. None of this is working out the way that we, the kingdom of God is not what any of us expected. Um, they have Jesus quoting the scripture. I love the part in the scene where, <laughs> but John the Baptist called his uh, the spiritual leaders a brood of vipers. And Jesus just shrugs. <laughs> like, yep. And... Uh, <laughs> I, I like that moment. I, I really liked what they did. I, I love what they did with the children in the marketplace and the quoting of Aesop's fables. It's either one way or another. I, I'll have to go back and look at that the next time I read it, because they had him teaching it in order to say, it's like your children who refuse to play. I have always read that teaching as instead of acting like adults, they're acting like children, like just like the kingdom of God is here, but you're over there playing your religious games. Either way, the point is kind of the same, but I really thought that was a very, I like how they wove that in there. Um, and then, and then, and then weaving it back towards eating and drinking, like they've woven together a few passages here that are just really, really well done. Um, somewhere in there, there was even, um, I don't have it in my notes, but they did something. And I thought, boy, did they intend to do that with the scriptures? Because if they did, I am amazed because um, I, I had never even considered it. And I didn't write it down, Brent. But um, And then one of the things I liked about what Jesus did at the end of that little conversation, that confrontation, is earlier during the zealot conversation between Z and the, and the other zealots, like there was conversation about like... He's healing people, and that's proof. Like, I knew he was the Messiah because he healed my brother at the pool, is what Z says. And that theme has kind of been present throughout The Chosen. I get it. I, there's definitely passages in John that certainly read that way on the surface. I don't think we're necessarily supposed to tie proof of Jesus' Messiahship to his healing. We we know from history there was a lot of people doing those kinds of things, miracles, whatever you want to say about that or believe about that, that that was not necessarily a unique only to Jesus attribute. John definitely makes the connection for sure, the Gospel of John. I just feel like the whole conversation is slightly more nuanced. But I did like how Jesus said it at the end of his (laughs) confrontation, where he's like, you go back and tell John what you've seen. And he refers more, not just the healing, yeah, the healings, the miracles, but the changed lives, the stories, the – and I'm like, okay, now we're tapping in to the greater proof of what the kingdom looks like. Not just that Jesus is able to wheel and deal miracles, but that 
it, it's actually bringing shalom to chaos. And and I was like, I, I liked how Jesus did that. Well, and he also does the, the step up at the end. He's like, and add to that, that the dead are raised. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I did love that little addition there. Just so Akiva could hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, so many so many looks at Akiva throughout that conversation that were just fantastic. And yet and yet they managed that again. I mean, just gonna hand it to the writers and whatever, because they're managing that space. It would be so easy to overdo it in one direction or another. Um, like to just really just lay on the condemnation or to not <laughs> either direction. And they just find this beautiful, like Jesus has this stern but it still feels compassionate. Like it's still Jesus saying, like even in this scene, he says, but you're going to miss the kingdom of God. And there's almost like this pleading, slightly angry, don't miss it as he looks at Akiva. Like, yep. like they just walk this line of there's stern, there's rebuke, no doubt about it. But there's also this like, it's not over the top rebuke. Um, which again, for, you know, there's been a couple moments where I felt like stuff was maybe a little leaning towards supersessionism, but they've saved a ton of that. Like there's so many places it could be a thousand times worse and they save it because of how they're able to portray that tension with Jesus, which I would like to think is how, how it was, how it likely was historically. And I really appreciate how for the most part, these characters are not impulsive. They are willing to let Jesus say whatever he's going to say before they jump to conclusions. Yep. Uh, it's yeah, it's good. Uh, let's see. So we have Z at the end. Um, he's asking the other zealots kind of what they thought about what they saw. It seems like at least one of them mostly gets it. Um, I mean, he says like Z kind of invites him to come along with him and he's like, well, I got to go find my own way. But it seems like he does at least understand what's going on. And they're at a minimum convinced that Z is not a traitor at this point. Um, and then at the end, the line they said was Simon the Simon the Sicarius is dead. I did not catch that the first time I watched it, and I caught it today. And I was like, oh, that's a great line. I caught everything up to the actual message he was going to give them. And then I realized what he was saying, which was the Simon we knew, because he can't go back and say he let Simon off the hook or he'll be dead. Right. So he has to, like, how do I go back to the zealots and say I fulfilled my mission? Well, the Simon I came to kill is no longer alive. He's changed. And I liked that transformation variable there. And, uh, you know, Z takes that line in and he is just like overwhelmed with all of the emotions about like, Oh yes. Yes. That, that part of me that I felt like I knew so well really is dead, which I love because that's at least the third time that either he or somebody else has vocalized that about him. He said it of himself. I'm not a zealot anymore. Uh, Peter said it at least about, or somebody did when they were talking about the mission trip. Like it's been vocalized at least three times, maybe more from other people. And he's still having to hear it, which I love because that's so true of our own journey too. You hear something, it's so true. You internalize it, but you also don't because you have to keep hearing that truth spoken into your life and spoken over you Mm -hmm. repeatedly for that transformation to keep happening. And so... I personally just love the fact that he's he's still being impacted by that statement because it's this ongoing process for him. Well, even in the earlier scene when he's sharpening that dagger 
And yes, uh, I can't remember if it's little James or Nathaniel, but, but they're like, why does it have to be a dagger? Why can't it just be, you know, something that's useful for other things too. Right. And it's like, he's kind of hiding off from the rest of the group. Like they're all doing the same thing, but he's kind of hiding over to the side. He's got his back to them. Yep. It's like, he's, he's doing what he knows, but he's ashamed that he's doing it. It's like, he's, yep. And, and then he doesn't even have it with him later. So yeah, just so much struggle, so much like yeah. kind of the same, the same sort of thing as Mary's going through, like yep, trying, like she knows she's free from her past, but she feels like it defines her and yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's great. Yep. So then we see, uh, after the crowd is dispersed, Barnaby brings Shula to Jesus and, and she doesn't want to bother Jesus with whatever's going on. And, uh, I love that Jesus, uh, he has her turn her face to him. Um, he affirms her faith and her ability to see what others can't, but I'm going to heal you anyway. Everybody's thrilled by this. Barnaby kind of looks at him. He's like, Hey, this is about her. Some other time for me. And Jesus, uh, puts his hand on his shoulder. And I, I think the first time I saw this, I was like, he's definitely healing him at this point. Right? Like that's, yeah, that's what's happening. And of course that is what happens. Uh, they start to walk off and Barnaby realizes that uh, his leg is working or his, I, don't, I don't I don't know if his leg or his foot or whatever, but uh, everything's working as he uh, would hope someday that they could. And uh, so then Barnaby jumps on Jesus and they <laughs> uh, they go off and then oh there was I forgot I forgot to say this line. So at the end of that, well, before that scene, Jesus is talking with uh Simon, I think there's a couple other guys there. Um, and they're commenting oh, yes. on how oh right. Yep. Simon's like, I don't know if it's more fun the to see the the look on people's faces when they're healed or to see the look on the the Pharisees' faces when you do that stuff or whatever. Um and and he's talking about how great it is for the Pharisees to be around whenever Jesus does anything like that. And and so then Barnaby and Shula walk off and Jesus said, no Pharisees around for this one. And Simon says, still just as fun. Yeah, I, I yes, I, I really like that scene. Um, the one thing that I kept thinking of is I kept thinking of Jesus's conversation with James, little James, about why he's not healing little James. And then... And I kept thinking of Jesus telling little James, like, because I trust you that much. That's why you're going to, like... If you want to be healed, you want to be healed. But if you're willing to walk with this, I trust you this much. And then here's Shula. And my brain was immediately going, oh, he doesn't trust Shula that much. And I went, no, 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 no. Because James is not, I, I never picked up in any of James's story, this internal shame mon- monologue. Like, I'm not worth being seen. I'm not worth being looked at. I'm not worth being healed. Like you're too busy. That was never James posture. James was wrestling with a whole nother set of very valid, legitimate questions. Shula's posture was, I'm fine. You don't need to take time. I don't. And so Jesus, Jesus's healing seems to, again, address who, who they are as unique people. It's not an abstract condition. It's the condition in relation to the person and how they're holding it and who they are and what the gospel wants to do in their life. And so Jesus heals Shula because it's going to address some of her brokenness. 
It's going to make her more whole, more welcome, more like where with James, he doesn't struggle with the same stuff. So he's going to be able to carry it. I just, I just thought it was a great scene to grapple with the wisdom of God when it comes to these questions about, because that's the problem with miracles, right? I'm not denying that miracles happened in the past. I'm not even denying that miracles happen today, but miracles are problematic in that if one person experiences the cancer is just gone, but my uncle dies of cancer, how do I put those two things together? And this scene enables me to consider the wisdom of God in knowing situations in their exact nuance and who we truly are and what we truly need and how the story can truly play out and why those why those answers to those questions could potentially be be different because they're not just an abstract formula that you plug into a spiritual computer it's uh, Jesus sees each one of these people for exactly who they are so I, I I don't know if that made any sense Brent but yeah totally and I I think yeah he takes everybody's situation separately like he's not just like even the crowd like i think we all believe that jesus could just snap his fingers and everybody there would be fine or everybody in the world would be fine like whatever but he takes the time for each person to approach him he talks to them he looks at them and we don't see all of those conversations but i think this is just kind of a snapshot and even even barnaby like i don't get the impression at all that barnaby is like Oh, next time for me, wink, wink, unless you want to do it now, wink, wink. Like there's none of that. Like he is totally focused on Shula, completely selfless in that situation. And Jesus says, ah, there's, there's no reason I shouldn't do it now. Yep. So like every, every person, every healing is, is its own thing, um, geared towards whatever that person needs. And yeah, it's just a beautiful scene. Yeah. Yep. So we close out. Um, Simon gets home and is trying to share what happened with Eden. And she, you know, can't quite can't quite handle Simon's energy at this point and and bursts out and shares that she had been pregnant and the baby was lost. And Simon is like, whoa, what? How did that happen? Uh, there's a lot of back and forth on this. And man, I said, I. I need to double check with my wife and see what her perspective is on this. But I feel like I see exactly the way that my relationship with Maggie plays out in these characters. I think I've said that several times before. <laughs> I still see it again in the way that they, yeah, like it's just, yeah, it's, uh, it hits a little too close to home, Marty. So what, what what's going on here? Um, yep. And so Simon's like, after he gets his initial questions out, um, he he starts to like like um maybe i shouldn't have gone on that mission maybe i shouldn't have even been called by jesus um he kind of starts to process this whole thing that's happening and i don't know that i have too much to say about it yet i think as we see the rest of this play out in the next episode or two uh i'll have more to say about it but yeah that's just just kind of they reveal the situation um to i mean we knew this as as viewers but reveal the situation to simon and that that is the end of the episode at that point yeah and you know we we spoke about this whatever one two episodes whatever it was we started talking about i thought it honored it wasn't just a story element i felt like they really honored the angst of so many people that have 
again, I would have to ask people that have been through it and see what they, what their feelings were. But I felt like there was care taken in how they designed that tension and that part of the story arc. And, and yeah, those beautiful writers, because I was expecting the credits to roll as Barnaby and Shula danced around the corner. <laughs> and then those writers give me that episode cliffhanger to remind me that there's still things a brewing and still things that we wrestle with and struggle with. So, well, and I do love like, because we just, we don't talk about miscarriage. Yep. And Simon's first question is, well, were you, were you working too hard? Yeah. Right. And she's like, no, and that's not how it works anyway. Right. And that's, that's just like a passing comment at the beginning of this pretty drawn out, uh, back and forth, uh, argument, whatever you want to call it. Um, but yeah, like just, just the awareness of like, yeah, that is, that is a common response. Yep. And yep. Even just bringing it up and putting it into the conversation is really valuable and important. So absolutely, I think lots more to come on this, uh, on this, but I, I think that's all I want to talk about for now. There you go. Okay. Sounds good. Pretty good conversation today, Brent. We got a we got a couple more big episodes coming up, so I, <laughs> we do. I imagine that uh, you know we will not be short of things to discuss. I would imagine that. Yes. Uh, so uh, you guys can go to bamadeception dot com. Check out that article, the Wikipedia article on Rabbi Akiva. Like, man, what in the world? I still am reeling from the fact that he was only twenty <laughs> when the temple was destroyed. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, that'll be in the show notes. Uh, all the other stuff is on the website. Uh, so thanks for joining us on the Baywatch podcast. We will talk to you again soon.